Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 28th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel decision reversed a penalty imposed for a late salary continuation payment. Here's what happened in the case of Fiorentino versus Allen Hancock College. Leanne Fiorentino sustained an industrial cumulative trauma injury to her psyche, resulting in continuing temporary disability beginning April 9, 2010. The findings and award issued on May 19, 2011. Payment for temporary disability benefits was to be included in her regular paycheck since she was receiving salary continuation pursuant to the California Education Code and her union contract. After the salary continuation benefits ceased to be paid, the temporary disability payments would be made directly to the worker. Hancock College received the findings and awards shortly before the May 23rd cutoff date for payroll imposed by the Santa Barbara Education Office. Thus, the college missed the deadline for her next regular paycheck on May 31st. The award was therefore paid at the time of the next regular payroll or June 30th. Fiorentino filed a petition for penalties for this delay. The employer provided the only evidence on penalties at trial. They conceded that the findings and award was received four days before the payroll cutoff date of May 23rd. However, supervisor approval was required to pay the award. The next payroll cutoff was June 23rd for the June 30th payroll. These payments are issued on standard dates and the payroll is handled by the Santa Barbara Education Office. There are no payroll checks at Hancock College. And since all payroll is paid through the Santa Barbara Education Office, they are mailed from the Santa Barbara Office on the date that the payroll period ends. The work comp judge concluded that Hancock College unreasonably delayed payment of applicants' temporary disability benefits and imposed a penalty of nearly $5,000. The judge also found the defendant's reason for delaying payments due to the time it took to calculate these benefits to be unreasonable. The WCAB did not agree with the trial judge and the penalty was reversed on reconsideration. The WCAB noted that the cutoff dates were imposed by the Santa Barbara County Education Office and since the payment was to be made through the employee's regular paycheck, the cutoff date came almost immediately upon receipt of the award. The several days needed to make the calculation in this case was not unreasonable. The petition for reconsideration was granted and the award of penalties was reversed. Also, the WCAB issued their final word in the Maselli case. The appeals board issued its second decision after reconsideration, holding that the principles set forth in their first decision as to the timeliness of seeking a panel of qualified medical examiners applies prospectively to panel QME requests made after the date of the first decision. In arriving at the second decision, the WCAB said that the DWC medical unit had been overburdened with panel requests even before the September decision inadvertently increased the likelihood of multiple panel requests being made in the same case. The WCAB did not wish to exacerbate the delay in parties obtaining QME panels. Also, the WCAB did not wish to encourage litigation over which of multiple QME panels is the correct one. Thus, in this second decision, the rule is clarified. If the DWC medical unit has already issued a panel 
and no objection was raised prior to the September 26, 2011 decision, that panel may not be challenged based upon the Maselli decision. If, on the other hand, a party promptly objected before the September 26, 2011 decision issued, the objecting party is entitled to the benefit of its correct interpretation of the law. The WCAB expressed no opinion as to what constitutes an adequate objection. The board concluded that with the exception of a few difficult cases, the prospective application of the new law would avoid a landslide of reopenings. And now our fraud report. The Court of Appeal upheld a criminal conviction in a workers' compensation fraud case. Here's what happened in the unpublished decision of People v. Laszlo Sversix. Sversix slipped and fell on a wet surface and injured his back in 2005 while working as a cook at Studio Diner in San Diego. And he had prior injuries. In 1995, when he was working as an executive chef at Heritage Place in Tracy, California, he slipped and fell on a wet mat and suffered injuries to his back, neck, and left shoulder. In 1998, while he was working as a chef at Station 55 in Gilroy, California, he slipped and fell, causing a compression fracture to his spine. He also had a claim in 1996 for an automobile accident. He did not give an accurate history of these prior injuries to his treating physicians, the QME, nor to the state fund defense attorney at the time of his deposition. He tried to blame his lack of candor on language difficulties. He claimed he was a 54-year-old chef who immigrated to the United States from Hungary when he was 23. His primary language is Hungarian, and he testified that he only speaks a little English. He was prosecuted for fraud and was convicted of three counts of making a false statement to obtain workers' comp benefits. Sversex appealed his conviction and the Court of Appeal sustained his conviction. He claimed on appeal that his language difficulty caused him to misunderstand what he was required to reveal to his doctors and at the time of his deposition. The Court of Appeal rejected this argument, noting that he successfully performed his work, spoke with doctors, spoke with personnel from the state fund, and argued before the WCAB in English without the aid of an interpreter. He also argued that his deposition testimony could not be used against him because he never signed and delivered his copy of the transcript to the state fund. The Court of Appeal said that the requirement of delivery of a deposition transcript is only relevant to the crime of perjury because no such crime is committed until the false statement is delivered to another. His three convictions did not involve the crime of perjury. All of his objections were rejected and his convictions and penalties were affirmed in all respects by the Court of Appeal. Many drug companies have faced charges brought by federal and state governments over the last 10 years, and most paid huge settlements to resolve charges ranging from illegal marketing to kickbacks and other questionable activities. And now another large drug company settlement has just been announced. The Novartis Sandoz unit has agreed to pay 150 million Swiss francs to settle claims that charged the U.S. and state governments inflated prices for drugs. Under the deal, Novartis will pay the U.S. government $86.5 million and the states of California and Florida $40 million and $15.2 million respectively.
Venicare, a drug company from Florida, will receive $8.3 million from the settlement. An Novartis spokeswoman said that Sandoz agreed to the settlement to avoid further costs, unpleasantness, and the uncertainty of a long court hearing. And in medical news, a new study demonstrates that a phenomena known as white coat effect inflates as much as 37% of blood pressure readings taken in a doctor's office. Hypertension aggravated by an industrial injury is a common permanent disability add-on under the California Adaptation of the AMA Guide's 5th edition. Claims administrators should be aware of the phenomenon known as white coat hypertension when evaluating these industrial claims. White coat hypertension is a known medical phenomena in which patients exhibit elevated blood pressure in a clinical setting, but not in other settings. It is believed that this is due to the anxiety some people experience during a clinic visit. Prior studies claimed that 15 to 30 percent of those thought to have mild hypertension in a clinic displayed normal blood pressure elsewhere. But a new study from the University of Barcelona claims that the percentage of patients with white coat hypertension may be even higher than previously thought. Analyzing a sample of over 8,000 patients with resistant hypertension, more than one-third had white coat hypertension. The study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. In order to detect which patients had the white coat syndrome, readings were taken in the clinic and were compared to readings taken by way of ambulatory monitoring outside the clinic setting. According to the ambulatory readings, over 60% of the study patients had true resistant hypertension, defined as a blood pressure of at least 130 over 80 despite treatment. The rest of the group had normal ambulatory pressures. It is therefore likely that one out of every three industrial claimants seeking a rating for hypertension under the AMA guides based upon blood pressure readings taken in an office is nothing more than white coat hypertension. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and patient self-measurement using a home blood pressure monitoring device is being increasingly used to differentiate those with white coat hypertension. Despite these studies, the diagnosis and treatment of white coat hypertension remains controversial. And in financial news, the state fund is ready to pay up to $50 million in severance packages for state workers who volunteer to leave by the end of this year. The state fund and SEIU union reached a first-of-its-kind transaction payments arrangement covering as many as 1,800 employees. At the same time, the union had blasted the fund for forcing some of its members to relocate without telling them in advance that they would be laid off anyway. While news of the deal spread, State Fund also announced that it is earmarked $50 million in dividends for policyholders. It is the first time in a decade that the fund has paid a dividend. Asked whether the two events were linked, a fund spokeswoman said that there was nothing intentional in the timing. Although civil service rules do not require severance for terminated employees, officials say the deal reflects the fund's commitment to doing the right thing for employees facing layoff. The agreement gives departing employees with seven or more years of state fund service six months of salary plus 
$9,000 for the loss of health care and other benefits. Employees with less than seven years at the state fund would receive a payment equal to four months of gross salary plus $6,000 for lost benefits. State fund expects its layoff plan to be approved by the California Department of Personnel Administration. Employees whose jobs are targeted for layoff will have until December 15th to apply for the severance money and must leave employment by December 31st. And in other news, in June, WCIRB President and CEO Robert G. Mike announced his retirement after 42 years with the WCIRB. At that time, the governing committee formed a search committee to recruit Mr. Mike's successor. And as they search, the WCIRB governing committee has appointed Timothy Benjamin as interim president until such time as Mr. Mike's permanent successor is named. Mr. Benjamin started his career at the WCIRB in 1970 and has served as Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for the last 22 years. Mr. Mike has been retained as an executive consultant to facilitate this transition. The Rating Bureau, which employs about 200 people, is a private nonprofit organization made up of more than 400 workers, comp insurers. It is funded without state money, mostly through membership fees and assessments. It is with great sadness that we report the death of Norman F. Boxley, the Floyd Scarnan Kelly Managing Civil Litigation Attorney. Mr. Boxley earned his undergraduate degree from California State University, San Francisco, before going on to earn his Juris Doctorate degree from Hastings College of Law. He was a member of both the California and Nevada Bar Associations and practiced law in both states. During his career, he was a member of a vast number of professional organizations, including the Defense Research Institute, the Southern and Northern California Fraud Investigator Associations, the Southern California Association of Defense Counsel, and the Los Angeles Bar Association. He was a decorated Vietnam veteran, having served in combat as an infantry officer in the United States Army. On Friday, November 18th, his single-engine airplane crashed near the grandstands at the Los Angeles County Fairgrounds during an inbound landing approach to Brackett Airport in Laverne. He was the only one on board, and there were no injuries to anyone on the ground. Norm was an experienced and dedicated pilot, holding a commercial pilot's license with instrument and multi-engine ratings. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating the accident and has not yet determined the cause. Norm practiced out of the firm's Pasadena office and conducted jury trials in cities statewide in California and Nevada. He resided in Pasadena with his wife Pam and his family. His good nature, humor, and infectious enthusiasm for just about everything was enjoyed and cherished by those of us who knew him. His many friends and colleagues will deeply miss him. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.